0: Welcome to the Desert City Church podcast. What you are about to hear is a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. We are spending the summer in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a big word, but it simply means repetition of the law or repeating of the law. It is a book comprised of a series of sermons Moses gave the people of God before they were to enter the promised land. The people of God spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, a time of formation identity, and unexpected lessons. These divine words come to us out of the wilderness. All right. Good morning, Desert City. It's so good to be on the stage and in this space. So thankful for the opportunity this morning just to, to be able to share uh, in our series, Out of the Wilderness, um, as we're walking through the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, and there are two stories that I want to share with you this morning. The first star- story starts in Egypt. Now, that's kind of the, uh, the before story. Before we get into Deuteronomy, we know that uh, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. They were ruled over by the most powerful empire at that time, and the most powerful leader in Pharaoh. They lived enslaved. Now we know the story goes that God, through Moses, delivers his people out of Egypt, parts a Red Sea, has them cross safely while their enemy is devoured by the water, and then they start their journey through what we call the wilderness. The Israelites find themselves walking from Egypt to their next destination. This point of the wilderness would be the transition. They're coming out of slavery and now have been have become a liberated people. Now, along that journey, there are some significant markers. One of them was their time at Mount Sinai. Now, at Mount Sinai, we, many of us know the story that Moses went up to the top and, and came down with, what, two tablets with commandments, right? In this time of transition, we see that God purposely sets forth for them not just a new destination, but a new way of living. You were enslaved people. Many of you born into slavery. All you know is a life of being a slave. So let me tell you this new rule and this new law. It's not going to be like it was before. There's purposes in this transition as God sets up this idea of law. And in fact, judges. In fact, Moses, uh, in his recount of, of the Uh, of the events in Deuteronomy 1, uh, verse 16 through 17. He's talking about how overwhelming it would be for him to take care of everyone's needs as far as one wronging the other and judging rightly. If he was in charge of everyone, it would be like, you know, probably the dough house on a Friday night when every kid is running around crazy, right? Like, it's just chaos. You can't just handle the crowd, And so Moses says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to appoint 12 judges, one from each tribe of Israel, to handle these disputes. Here's what it really says. Hear the disputes between your people and judge fairly, whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of anyone, for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case too hard for you, and I will hear it. What's interesting here is that he sets up a system where everyone is treated with the same equity. Everyone is seen equally to one another. Before, they were coming from a place where Pharaoh ruled over everyone, and they were at the bottom, and they were treated as they were at the bottom. And God says, there's a new way that we're going to do things. And the way that this is enacted is that it, Moses makes sure that everyone is treated fairly by setting forth even more judges that would be able to make sure that, that the equity was provided to everyone, that everyone's welfare was taken care of. And this is seen throughout the law, the Mosaic law that was set up. In fact, Leviticus 1934 gives this idea of where they were coming from. It says, "The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself." For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You were foreigners in Egypt. The place that we're going, the foreigner is welcome home. Where we're going, the citizenship isn't based on your DNA, it's not based off of where you were born. Everyone is welcome because you know what it's like to be the foreigner, because you understand what that feels like. In this place, they will be welcome among you, so they would be treated fairly. Now, that said, we have this idea of transition from going from Egypt to Mount Sinai, where we get the laws and the the judges, and now we find ourselves in a place called Kadesh. And this is an encampment that they have for quite some time, And God prepares to do something great. He says, there's this land that that I told Abraham about, and now you're going to actually receive it. This land that is good, that I promised you. And so they pick out 12 spies, and from those spies, they send them out to Canaan, this land that was promised to them. And they go through the land, they begin to see these ripened grapes, and they see pomegranates, and they see figs, and this place is just incredibly lush. It's like the Whole Foods of Paradises. It's just everything you could imagine. And it's free, not you know, an arm and a leg. It's a beautiful place. And they see milk and honey flowing, which I don't know what that means, but literally milk and honey flowing. It was that good to them. And they come back to give account to Moses. And they go to Moses and they begin to tell him how wonderful it was and how there was this milk and honey and and everything was great. And then it begins to shift and change. They begin to talk about the cities and how fortified they are in the land and how crowded it was. There was no room for them. And then they talked about the dangers of of the individuals that are there, saying that some of them are the descendants of Anak. Now, many of you don't know Anak, so for a modern telling the story, maybe we'd replace Anak with uh, Andre the Giant. Just imagine a bunch of Andre the Giants, and that's why they're scared. There's just this behemoth of, of a man just walking around, and all of a sudden, there's this fear that strikes them. You see... All of a sudden, they lose sight of the fruit. They lose sight of what God has set as good because they were afraid by the possibility of not overcoming Andre. One of the spies spoke up. He said, in spite of seeing giants and the danger that lie ahead, the Israelites should still go, should still Press forward. What's interesting is what happens next. After they give this account to Moses, they go back into the encampment and they start to begin to spread this narrative. Now, it was very different from the one they just gave to Moses. No longer was there any fruit or milk or honey. Instead, it was just about the dangers, the perils. It was like they were trying to sow this narrative that many others would become convinced that this is not the right decision to make to press forward for their own agenda. In fact, in Numbers chapter 13, the original account of the story, we see that it says this. The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the, the giants. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. They spoke in hyperbole. They spoke in this language where they would be able to create fear among the people. And they sowed it well because the crowds in Israel and the encampment began to fear what was ahead of them, and they came together in an assembly with Moses. And they spoke this way in the original account, Numbers 14, If only we had died in Egypt or in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And then they looked at each other and they said, Yeah, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. It would have been better if we died in Egypt... We should go back to Egypt? This is insane. They just came from enslavement. They understood the life of a slave and how brutal it was. And yet, when they face giants ahead of them, and somewhere in between, God literally parted the Red Sea so they could go through. They're worried that they'll be overcome by the giants, so they'd rather be enslaved. At this point in the story, as they're trying to head from Egypt into the promised land, I- I'm surprised that we don't see God, like the like Dad, shouting to the back of the car, I will turn this thing around. <laughs> and he sort of does, actually, because God and Moses have a parlay. And God shares with Moses his intention to wipe out everyone but him and start over with this whole chosen people thing. Now, there's a whole sermon to be had within this conversation uh, if you find it in Numbers, but to just kind of keep us going along the line here. When we see Moses and God discuss this, God comes to this conclusion. Starting in verse 34 of Deuteronomy 1. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore. No one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors, except Caleb. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. And it says this, because of you, the Lord became angry with me as well. And he said this, you shall not enter either, but your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will enter, encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it and the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children, who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them, and they will take possession of it. Verse 40. But as for you, turn around and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Now, when we struggle or wrestle with the Old Testament God, this is kind of the picture of, a vindictive God to some of us. But truly what God is doing here is allowing for those who are in this assembly and said it's better to go back to Egypt. He said, okay, that will be the way it goes. He allows them to choose their own destination. They said it would be better to be slaves than to try to fight giants to gain God's promise. Now, I want to tell you a second story. The second story is a story of humanity. We live in the midst of a wilderness. In uh, the scriptures in the New Testament, Paul, in one of his letters, talks about how the world groans, how it's at unease, how it's suffering. And when we look at the world today, it's hurting, right? We have things like war, greed, struggle, famine, and ultimately, not to spoil the ending, but death. That's how this thing works. That's what we're used to. This is a wilderness. And in the midst of that, we find ourselves struggling constantly with the thing we call sin. It's our master at times. We are a slave to it, as it says in Scripture. And in that slavery, we struggle with anxiety, with anger, with greed, the lack of regard for others' wealth or well-being. The whole of humanity sits in the wilderness, and we look around us at the struggle And we wonder, is this the best we can do? And for some of us, we think, maybe we just go back to to Egypt, and maybe we just live that life. For others of us, we look ahead and we think that there's something better. We don't quite know how to define it or how to make it a reality, but we know that there's something worth going after. For us in humanity, we look at what's ahead, and we realize that there's something good to be had. We're in the midst of transition where we're coming out of the wilderness and God sets up something for us to see that says this is a new way of living. In fact, where there was Mount Sinai in Moses' time, in Christ's time, there was the sermon on the mount. And he built upon what was said in the Old Testament. He gives us what we call the new covenant. And the great example of this is he would say, you heard it was said to live this way. But I tell you to live this way. And every time he would take this tangible, tangible, uh, physical action or inaction and call us to go into an internal place. Call from a, an external focus to an internal matter. It became this new kingdom, this new place that we would call the kingdom of God. Jesus essentially, through his life, takes the way the world operates and he flips it upside down. He was teaching not only on the kingdom of God, he was teaching on the promised land. Now, unfortunately, it wasn't a very popular message, as we know the story goes, that he talks about this promised land, about the kingdom of God, and how it was here, and and visceral, and something to be experienced, yet uh, it led ultimately to his crucifixion. Now, it would be a lot easier knowing that crucifixion would lie ahead of us to go ahead and say, I'm pretty good with the wilderness thing. That's, that's going to probably do it well for me. But Christ overcomes the giants. Christ takes on the promised land and brings it to us. There's a story towards the beginning of uh, Christ's, life as, as his ministry, and um, we won't get into it too far, but there's this account where he goes into the desert for 40 days, and in that time, he overcomes these things that, that are these masters to us in our, our life, that the desire for power, and even the simple desire of hunger. And it's this representation by some understanding in theological circles that this was a representation of the 40 years that was spent by the Israelites and what they themselves could not overcome, Jesus overcomes. So what's wonderful to know today is that this promised land, if we look at in the picture of humanity as a whole, not just the Israelites, but us, you and I here today, the promised land is actually accessible and palatable. It is in front of us and it's around us. It's something that we can obtain and it is inside of us even. This promised land is not something that we have to wait for. but It's something that Jesus has already come that we may experience it here And now, this is the beauty of what God has done. Although we reject him and we claim other masters over our lives, he comes to us and offers us this freedom, this promised land. We stand between Egypt and the promised land, and when we are torn between the direction in which to head, we need to look these symptoms of promise where the Red Sea parts, where there's glimmers of hope and realize that this promised land can be here. It can be now. It can be present to us. We consistently have this choice to enter into the promised land. We have the opportunity every moment of every day to either flee into the wilderness or embrace the promised land. Now we flee because of risk assessment. We flee because it goes against the current that will naturally take us. It disrupts the narrative of many around us. But when we embrace the promised land, we create something for others to experience as well. Shortly before this passage, when we saw Moses establish the law and the judges, we saw that he was a part of bringing a system where all were created equally. Where all were treated fairly, where the welfare of all was considered—it's what Plato would call welfare, or what Israelites, excuse me, what Plato would call equity, or the Israelites would call shalom, wholeness. This is what they were pursuing, and what we have the choice of. Now, the question becomes: How do we bring that about? I love Walter Brueggemann, who's one of my favorite theologians, called like the. OT theologian, kind of like the OG, but the OT theologian, uh, he he said this in his uh, commentary on the book of Deuteronomy, the land of promise must be ordered by justice or the promise will evaporate. As we walk away this morning and we begin to ask ourselves, okay, what does the promised land actually look like in our world? Anytime we work towards justice in this world, we are bringing about the promised land. Anytime that we see our brother or sister in need and we fulfill that need, we are bringing about the promised land. When we see someone is hungry and we feed them, we bring about the promised land. When we look at someone in the midst of depression and we come alongside them, we are bringing about the promised land. And someone is swimming in debt and we come alongside them. We bring about the promised land. We see hurting and we come to the call. We bring about the promised land. Without justice, the promised land becomes just land. There's nothing special or ordained about where we walk. But the justice that we carry, the grace that we carry, the compassion that we carry makes land where we walk promised. It brings about the kingdom of God. Walk where you might, in any wilderness you may go, but with you also goes the promised land. Could you imagine going into the wilderness and have no fear because anywhere you touch, anywhere you go becomes the promise. This is the story not only of the Israelites, but it's a story of the kingdom of God. And it sets before us the opportunity to choose which way we want to go. I love how Moses recounts in verse 36, God says that Caleb followed him wholeheartedly with all his heart. And then in verse 40, if not, then back to Egypt. We give our whole selves to this. We lay ourselves down because we know that there's something greater to be had in front of us. We choose not our own fear, but in our faith that God would only do what is right And good. And he would deliver the promised land to all people, no matter their stature in the world. Now, as we come to a close this morning, and we go to a time of communion, I want to close again with this thought of the 40 days. When we see that God tells Moses that you will not enter into the promised land. It seems as if he remained faithful to God, so why would he not be a part of those who could go in? In fact, he had just said prior that he would destroy everyone but him and then build the nation again from him. But Moses, requesting and pleading to God, he said that he will save them and redeem them. But he too would have to lay down his life and would not enter the promised land. There is one who came before you, who walked through the wilderness and overcame it. There is one who came before you, who carried and bore a cross. And when we deserved the wilderness, laid down his life that way we may have access to the promised land. This morning as we take communion, may we bear the elements and accept that what Christ did is not just an opportunity someday to have a destination or a ticket to heaven, but that heaven is now able to come here, that the promised land can exist now, that through compassion, the cross we may also give compassion to the world communion is a tradition that we have here where we take the elements of uh, both the crushed grape and the bread and we remember what Christ did for all those who have professed that, that Christ is Lord and believe that God rose his son from the grave we invite you to these elements Even if it's your first time this morning, partake and understand the depth and the gravity, the hold that this has on the history of the world. For those who came before you and will come after you, we are welcomed into the promised land. Let's go before him in communion.